Welcome to Color Decoded, a podcast about colors inspired by the work from shows at the Community Library of DeWitt and Jamesville's Art Gallery. This program uses art education for the blind's guidelines for describing art. For more information, please visit www.artbeyondsight.org slash handbook slash acs guidelines.shtml. I'm Erin Ann. Our program begins now. by Candy Lucas is a collage piece. The background is a picture of the beach, either at dawn or dusk, with lavenders, purples, light oranges, and periwinkles in the sky. As a bank of dark blue-purple clouds roll in on the right. The water below is dark hues with ribbons of faded dark orange highlights. The center foreground features a bright collage of a ring of circle forms in greens, blue-greens, yellows, pinks, and browns, surrounded by a slim frame of a mirror or painting in gold. This ring cradles a blue area with a cool-colored triangle, which is almost completely obscured by a purple tulip. The tulip is in profile, but the pistol and stamen are visible inside in cross-section. Around the pistol and stamen chug three illustrated yellow submarines in various sizes from the Beatles animation and a photo of an ammonite-type spiral shell cross-section in brown and cream tones. There is an arm reaching from the left of the frame with flat palm open and outstretched. Two stained-glass human figures look on from the foreground, one with a book on the right and one with a hand shielding its eyes on the left. The bright yellow stem of the tulip is pushing out of an abstract blue shell shape with the semicircle of the earth behind it and also in the shell shape. The shell emerges from a ribbon of ribbed, possibly liquid, which flows out from behind the left side of the circle frame. This possibly liquid substance is dark rainbow colors with pinks, purples, and yellows being the primary colors. Producing a colorfast purple dye like that used for the purple tulip in Sea Terminal was the preoccupation of dye manufacturers for centuries. I assume dye manufacturers tried to use purple flowers to create purple dyes with some frustration. As Terence Conran points out, it must have been intensely frustrating to our ancestors that they were not able to reproduce what they saw around them every day in the form of pigments and dye stuffs. Over the centuries, the story of color has been one of trial and error, dead ends and happy accidents. There are many purple flowers that can be used as dyes, but a much smaller set that produce purple dyes. 
When we reference colors by the name of a flower, we are speaking of the color of the flower, not the dye. Think of orchid, violet, and lavender. These are the names used for three universal colors that all web browsers understand and display. The code that defines orchid is DA70D6. Violet is EE82EE. Lavender is E6E6FA. These are all purple shades. The first two are warmer and the last one is cooler. These days, there are more tutorials online for how to turn orchids different colors than to use them for dyeing. Violet is also not used for dyeing, although there is a commonly used stain called gentian violet in science to classify bacteria that is not made from violets but has a strikingly beautiful purple hue. Lavender has been successfully used as a dyeing agent. It produces pink hues. Other purple flowers produce surprising hues from either the blooms, leaves, or roots. Comfrey produces green dyes. Purple loosestrife produces browns. Purple basil produces browns, grays, and other hues. Larkspur produces green and yellow. Anato produces yellows. Purple barberries produce oranges. Hyacinth produces blues, bordering on purples. And irises make the same, but they also produce blacks. Historically, purple dyes, like in tales of other famous color discoveries, are found in unusual places. Purple as a dye was a very rare color for much of human history. This was partially due to manufactured scarcity and partially due to nature. Since about a century and a half before the Common Era, Phoenicians held the secret to highly prized, highly expensive purple, called Tyrian or royal purple, to themselves. Tyrian purple was named for Tyre, the city in Phoenicia that produced the dye, now part of Lebanon. Pliny the Elder divulged their secrets in 60 CE. By then, millions upon millions of small mollusks had been summarily sacrificed to extract the dye agent from one of their minute glands. The reason why this purple was reserved for royalty is because it was so labor-intensive to produce making it very expensive, in addition to being purposefully scarce. 1,000 mollusks would die to dye one cloak, and the animals quickly disappeared as a result. The first synthetic dye was a purple hue called mauve, and as soon as it was created in 1856, people went mad for it, including Queen Victoria and the wife of Napoleon III, Empress Eugenie. William Henry Perkin was trying to synthesize quinine from coal tar and produce the first of many coal tar-derived synthetic pigments. Manganese violet was the pigment equivalent of mauve dye, and it was also synthetic. Victoria Finlay writes, Before it was invented in 1868, artists had to mix red and blue to make purple, but now they could squeeze it straight out of the tube. Monet was especially prolific in using this new shade because he ascribed to a color theory by Chevreul, who popularized the idea of complementary colors. Since purple was the complement to yellow sunlight, Monet thought the shadows may be a purple color and proceeded to find out over a long series of open-air painting studies. Monet believed that the true color of the atmosphere was violet. 
There are some possibilities for natural sources of purple dye, and we'll talk about that with my colleague Kara after this brief sponsor break to talk about who keeps this show going. podcast is sponsored by the Community Library of DeWitt in Jamesville. Situated due east of Syracuse, New York, the library offers convenient, friendly, modern services to its patrons. The library features a fully equipped Children's Discovery Center and collections adjacent to a locally and historically significant mural by artist Elliot Matisse. The library has an art gallery featuring shows on a rotating schedule. Additionally, the library offers ebook, audiobook, music, and streaming video collections. The library's makerspace houses their digital production equipment, including the microphone, hardware, and software that are used to make this podcast. For more information, call or stop by or visit us online at cldnj.org. We look forward to meeting you. On the podcast, we have a really excellent art gallery, which is where all of the art that inspires these episodes comes from. We do shows currently every two months, and we record all of the content that is housed in those shows. So that's the archive that I'm using to write the content that we have for the episodes. I want to talk to Kara a little bit about the art gallery and answer some burning questions that people might have about it. Would you like to introduce yourself briefly? Sure. First of all, Erin, I wanted to say thank you for inviting me. This is the first podcast I've ever been a guest on, so hopefully the first of many, but it's a true honor. Thank you. My name is Kara Conley, and I am a reference librarian here at the Community Library of Dewitt in Jamesville. I am also a co-chair of the library's art committee, and that's what I'll be chatting with Erin about today. So if you haven't visited the library's art gallery, I highly recommend it. It is a hallway that is adjacent to some of our meeting rooms on the main level of the library, the ground floor. We have anywhere between 8 and 20 pieces for each show. Let's get into some questions about the gallery. What is the history of the art gallery at CLD&J? Great question. I actually came into the art committee a little late because I was hired as a full-time librarian in May of 2018. Now, um, I'm not sure if some of you listeners know this, but we have a fairly brand new building. We are very fortunate. Uh, We moved from our prior location that was in a suburban mall that is falling down pretty much. (laughs) I'm glad we got out when we did, which was summer 2017, just in time. There's nothing like grease from the grease traps from the fryers <laughs> on the, of the food court on the second floor coming down and damaging our computers. Still in my nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, we were very, very lucky that we were able to construct a building from scratch in a way. We were able to put our vision and our desires for a library building into our current one. I know that at the time of kind of visioning and planning what the building would look like, our executive director, Wendy Scott, decided that we needed to have an art gallery. And she was a huge advocate for introducing local artists and local art to the community and the public at large. And so the gallery hallway was integrated into the original building plan. And then once the building was constructed and we moved in, there was a more informal art committee that was created between my coworker Fran, and two amazing volunteers who are stewards in the art community. So the three of them kind of put their heads together and came up with a list of their ideal artists for the first year of the gallery. And so for the first year, there was really um, one artist per month, which was quite a lot, and the turnover was pretty quick. I formally joined the committee in July 2018. And then we also have a couple other members. How many of us are there? All seven of us um, come together about once every two months to outline our vision and our goals for the art gallery and orchestrate the logistics of the space. Because it isn't just picking art and putting it on the walls. There's always some planning and there might be expenses every once in a while. So it's good to have different members from different sections of the library. Oh, for sure. Team. Yeah, everyone brings something to the team. And what's really great is that we're not just orchestrating artists to put on the wall. We're also expanding our educational opportunities that come with the gallery space. We're working with artists who are willing to provide public presentations, whether that's about um, their art, their process, their own kind of history working as an artist and how that fits with their current pieces that are hanging in the gallery. We also are creating resource guides for every artist that shows. We're creating a list of other resources, books, videos, podcasts that you can listen to, such as this one, (laughs) to increase your knowledge about that particular type of art, which is great. I love that we're able to provide that to the public. That's awesome. Would you say that some of these educational initiatives are really important to your work with the art galleries committee? For sure. Uh, I came into librarianship because I am interested in providing access to information. And that word access is the most important thing to me. I think that it's amazing to support the local art community and have them be able to show here in our library space, but also provide an opportunity for our patrons to have access to all different types of art and access to some of the educational and creative tools that we're offering as well. Yes, indeed. What do you think the purpose of the CLDNJ Art Gallery is? Yeah, so kind of going back to what we've talked about before, I think the purpose of the art gallery, uh, we actually have about four different values that we prioritize as part of the gallery. Um, The first one is we want to provide access to high quality art from local working artists. Secondly, we want to exhibit art that represents a diverse range of styles and mediums and themes. So in the last almost two years now, we've had everything from photography to oil painting to ceramics to metal and copper. Uh, It's been fascinating and amazing to see the breadth of 
work that our community produces. And I think being able to provide diversity of that is very important. Our third value that we cherish is that we want to establish the library as a focal point for the local arts community. We want people to feel comfortable and want to show here, but also be able to use the library as a, as a meeting space or a communal place to do art and make art here. Uh, so that's important to us as well. And finally, kind of touching upon the educational aspect, we really want to use this committee and use the gallery to provide educational opportunities. Um, and that will hopefully increase visual literacy and knowledge of art and kind of the ability to express yourself through that creative outlet. I think that's great. And I look forward to future events where you can bring artists uh, together at the library. I think this is a great spot for it. And um, I think we're all very receptive to that kind of thing here. Yeah, we're really lucky. We have a community at large that is really embraces the arts and supports the arts. But it's, I also really enjoy the fact, too, that, you know, maybe people who aren't necessarily as familiar with art can walk in here. And I've seen children of all ages walking up and down the hallways. And I think that kind of moment is quite magical and serendipitous as well. We're very, very lucky in that we do have some really, really great permanent art pieces here in the library, including Elliot Matisse's mural. We also have Margie Hudo's pieces, and she has a very, very strong dedication to educational initiatives. As a ceramic artist, um, I believe she was on the faculty of uh, Syracuse University for a while, and she does regular uh, studio tours, I believe, as well. Which artists do you show in the art gallery? Uh, We have a variety of artists. Our main stipulation is that uh, you live locally in central New York. We want to make that tie to the area and continue to kind of boost our local art community. And by doing that, we want to make sure that the artists that we put on the walls live in the area. Um, So we also try, you know, as a committee, we decide who will go on the gallery wall. But we invite any and all artists from the central New York area to submit their work to our art gallery committee so that we can decide whether or not you might be the right fit for us. And we'd love to see your work. If you'd like to submit your work to be considered, for the art gallery space here at the library, feel free to email me, Kara, at kconley, which is C-O-N-L-E-Y, at C-L-D-A-N-J dot O-R-G. And please, um, if you could, submit about five images of your recent work that you would like to show in the gallery space. If you could also submit an artist bio and statement, that would be wonderful as well. Is there an artist that you would be really excited to show in the art gallery or an artist that we've had that you'd like to talk about? I would love everyone to check out the work of our art committee member. I know I'm a little biased right here, (laughs) but um, she has dedicated so much time to making our art gallery space the best it can be. And so during the months of September and October, Uh, We are hosting her work here at the gallery, and her name is Pam Steele. Um, And she has had an amazing long career uh, making these fabulous pieces that that are enormous, in which she fires copper and metal and glass at insanely high temperatures, which creates an enameling effect and ultimately makes the most stunning structural 
pieces of art that I highly recommend you stopping by the library to see. And if you're not available to make it in September or October this year, there is a permanent installation piece by Pam Steele in the library at the end of the art gallery. That's very true. Thank you, Erin. Where can people go to get more information? They can go to our website, www.cldnj.org. Um, and under our services page, you will see a description of our art gallery space, uh, a list of the upcoming artists that we will be showing, and also some information about how you can submit your own work to be considered as part of our art gallery. We often post little sneak peeks of whatever show is on. So if you want to ever get a little sneak peek of whatever's up there, you can follow us on social media as well. Thank you so much, Kara. That was great info. Thank you, Erin, for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to listen to the overall podcast and learn more about color theory. I don't know a lot about color theory, and I very, very much look forward to educating myself in it. Yay. Thank you. So the first part of this episode was talking a little bit about how people in the past have tried their darndest to find purple dye. It's very, very hard. You know, there are purple flowers that exist and people tried to use those for pigment, but often you would get greens or browns or yellows out of dyes from purple flowers. But I want to talk a little bit about teas. And there are several flowers that are used in teas, including other herbs and things like that. Do you drink tea at all, Kara? I'm known to drink tea occasionally. I prefer coffee in the morning, and I usually have a little half cup in the early afternoon. Um, but sometimes when I'm feeling overwhelmed by coffee, I turn to tea. I'm most likely to drink tea uh, at night before bed. Gotcha. I drink two cups of tea a day. I prefer it to coffee. Every so often I'll have coffee, especially if I need a bigger boost than I usually get. And you can also dye fabrics with coffee. They come out with this beautiful reddish brown tone. It's Mm. gorgeous. It's very rich. Indeed. Expert dyers can get beautiful shades out of their coffee. But with tea, you can get a much wider variety, of course, because you have your herbal teas that you can basically throw whatever you want into as long as it's like a plant of some variety. Hey, it's a tea now. I do want to talk a little bit about one dyeing experience I had with black tea. So I was making a cross stitch pattern and I ran out of one color of basically salmon thread that I was using. And so I went to the store and they didn't have the exact same variety of thread that I was using before. So I had to get the closest I could from the selection I had. And when I got home and I compared it, it was too bright. So I decided to just take some (laughs) leftover tea from a tea bag and just stick some of the thread in there for a little while. It worked pretty good. I think it masked it pretty well in the end. So you can get brown from tea tree, hops, dandelion root as well. Pink comes from rose hips, bergamot, lavender, hibiscus, and also St. John's wort, which is used often for medicinal teas. Orange, you can find in rhubarb and loquat, which is a type of uh, fruit from Asia. Yellow, you can get from chamomile, which is one of probably the most widely used tea ingredients. That's what I drink. It's very soothing. (laughs) Passion flower is great for yellow. Hops, you can also get yellow from. And the skin of pomegranates, 
Green you can find in hyssop, also passion flower. Mint, which is not surprising. If mint tea gave you not green, I would be very, very surprised. Nettle as well will give you green and fig leaves. Blue you can get from cornflower. And purple you can get from hibiscus and elderberry. Do you know why you cannot get purple dye from lavender? That's a great question. I think it must have something to do with the compounds and the chemistry of the flower itself. There are so many purple flowers that are so striking. Like think of irises or violets even. That's where the color name comes from. Lilacs. Hyacinths. But when it goes through the dyeing process, you have to apply mordants and alums to get it to stick to whatever fabric you're using. And so in that process of adding additional stuff, it might turn a different color. Or it might just not work at all. It might not be the right sort of compound to, to adhere to fabric. There are some viable purple dye sources that give very, very good purples. But they come from unusual sources, as you might expect. Black olives, hollyhock, elderberries, blackberries, sunflower seeds, red cabbage, and there are some lichens that will give you purple. And these, of course, vary in color fastness. So if you wash them, these might uh, dull over time. It is what it is, but I'm glad that we have developed synthetic sources for purple dye now and we don't have to rely on the whims of nature. Thank goodness for that. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and that's a wrap. Thanks, Kara. You're welcome. Thank you, Aaron. For further reading, I would like to recommend Natural Color, Vibrant Plant Dye Projects for Your Home and Wardrobe by Sasha Durr. There is a fabulous color wheel on page 125 that shows the range of colors that can be achieved with 27 different plants. If you would like to read more about the meaning and uses of color, visit the Art We Heart list on the Community Library Goodreads account, where there is a wide variety of color-related volumes. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Color Decoded. The theme song is by Ember's Tide. Episodes are released on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. The episode was recorded with a snowball microphone in group meeting room A, both available for public use at the Community Library of DeWitt in Jamesville. In the CLDNJ Art Gallery, we will be having works by Cindy Lewis starting in November and going till the end of December. We invite you to visit our gallery and we will chat with you again on the next installment of Color Decoded.